0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are featuring books that have the power to transform. Today, we will explore the craft of facilitation and meeting management to create decisions, plans, and forward momentum that works for all involved. As we visit with Marvin Weisbord and Sandra Genoff, the authors of don't just do something, stand there. Following our interview today, you are invited to log into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. Here you can post questions and discuss issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our bookends featured authors who are members of this group. You will also find a link to a recording of today's interview as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and I'd like to introduce Marvin Weisbord, who served private industry and medical schools as a consultant from 1969 to 1992. He is a fellow of the World Academy of Productivity Science, and for 20 years was a partner in the firm Block, Petrella & Weisbord Incorporated, and a member of the NTL Institute for Applied Behavioral Science. He received a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2004 from the Organizational Development Network, which voted his book, Productive Workplaces, published in 1987, among the five most influential books in the last 40 years. He is also the author of Organizational Diagnosis, Discovering Common Ground, and Productive Workplaces Revisited. Sandra Genoff is a consultant and psychologist, and has worked with corporations, government agencies, and communities worldwide on issues of globalization, sustainability and humane practices. She was a staff member at the Tavistock Conferences, sponsored by Temple University in Philadelphia, and the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations in Oxford, England. She has also run training workshops in system-oriented group dynamics. She has taught an experimental, at an experimental high school and run workshops in Pennsylvania schools on alternative practices and education. She is a co-author of System Thinking in Small Groups and also the best-selling Future Search, which she co-authored with Marvin Weisbord. To get a copy of our, our featured book today, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There, uh, I'd like you to consider joining Future Search and changing the world one meeting at a time. You can do this by going to futuresearch.net. Once again, that's www.futuresearch. .net Sandra and Marvin welcome to Bookends. Thank you very much, Susan.
1: Thanks, Susan. Glad to join with you today.
0: It's great to be with you both and uh, it's a pleasure to have both of you on the call today. Um I'd like to begin by just exploring a little bit about what was behind writing this book. Um, why in the world would anybody want to write another book on meetings?
1: Yeah. Well, that's a particularly apt question for us because we already have written a book on meetings called Future Mm -hmm. Search, which is about to go into its third edition. Um, Future Search was the story of our adventures with a particular kind of three-day planning meeting that we've been running around the world for the last 20 years. And in the course of doing this meeting in a big cross-section of the world's cultures in Europe, Asia, Africa, as well as North and South America, we noted a couple of uh, trends in the world that were making more and more problematical the kinds of meeting methods that we learned in the 70s and the early, I guess, in the 1970s. One was the, the just the generalized speed-up in the rate of change and this relentless compression of time that everybody has been experiencing. Uh, it's, it's harder and harder to, to diagnose situations because they don't sit still long enough to be diagnosed, and that includes meetings and groups and, and individuals and groups. But the other phenomena that was equally important was just the increasing range of diverse, diverse people in our meetings especially in other countries, but increasingly in the United States. You can have people from multiple cultures, multiple generations, varying education levels, varying degrees of literacy. And in our meetings, at least, the only thing they have in common is an interest in the topic. So we became very interested in the kinds of methods that could be used with people who don't share similar worldviews and and don't have any interest in the kind of meeting models that we grew up on, uh, but are interested in working together and never have before.
2: Um, and and um, another impetus for this book is as we were running these meetings around the world, um, and Uh, discovering in our partnership that um, we had a particular theory and philosophy about running them, which involves doing less so that the participants could do more, um, and oftentimes observed as a minimal intervention, even though our our interventions are very particular, Uh, people would ask us, how do you accomplish what you accomplish what is the story of your facilitation practice and that led us to being even more explicit about it thinking and uh, and uh, writing this book and then running workshops as well
1: yeah what are you doing when you don't seem to be doing very much <laughs> and, and yet we accomplished a lot how come <laughs> yeah. yeah
2: there's a there's a picture <laughs> of us at mm-hmm. a future search sitting on a, on chairs talking to each other and we've Captioned it. Uh, Future search facilitators in action.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it may appear on the surface that you're not doing anything. But I know you're doing a lot of listening and a lot of monitoring of what what is happening in the oh. room, so that you can jump into action. Of course, we'll be talking about some of that in a little bit.
2: Yeah, actually, what we're doing is, um, in one way or another, applying the ten principles. That uh, for for leading meetings that matter, which is the subtitle for the book.
0: Yes, and and while we're talking about that, that's a good segue. Um, to me, you know, when I picked your book up, um, it it appeared to be almost a bit of a handbook. Could you talk a little bit about how the book is organized?
1: Yeah, we we ended up uh, writing six chapters on the managing of meetings, how to structure and manage meetings. Uh, and then, for, and then, as we were writing this, increasingly we were realizing that the management of the meeting was integrally tied up with how we manage ourselves, and we began to ask our, our each other questions about, well, what is it that we really consider important in managing ourselves? And we came up with topics like anxiety and projection, and how do you deal with your own authority? And um, and the, the question of uh, saying no in order to make a to be able to say credible yeses to requests that don't make sense. So the the other the other insight that we have had over time, and this is not a, a big aha, but a, a realization, is that we're both interested in working with structure before behavior. That the that the uh, part of the meeting the the part of meeting management that's controllable is the structure of the meeting. And if we can do a good job of doing that, then we don't have to worry so much about the individual styles and how people behave in a meeting. We really have let go of the things that used to worry us most, like what do you do with people who talk too much or people who Mm -hmm. don't talk enough or people who interrupt or, you know, there's a long list of behaviors, uh, getting at people's personalities and ways of being that we just simply don't bother with anymore. Uh, And... We've come to a whole philosophical rationale for that that we hope we'll talk about before our conversation with you is over.
0: And I hope so, too. And really, for me, it was really freeing um, to hear some of your thoughts around really focusing on the structure and letting go of of some of the behavioral things that – For those of us standing in the front of the room at time to time have produced a lot of anxiety. Another topic that you talk about, of course, in your book um, is anxiety um, when you talk about self-management. But, you know, as I was reading this, I was just so struck by so much of the information in your book that really was new to me. And I I don't consider myself a new facilitator at all, but there were really um, some just some excellent uh, facilitation techniques in the book that I found to be, new information, and I want to thank you for that. Uh, In fact, I was feeling a little guilty as I was reading your book because we had just completed a team development process with an intact team, and you really challenged my thinking uh, about team development in a number of ways, but particularly um, with regards to what you, you label as getting the whole system in the room. And the team that we had been working with was in conflict. And I can really see now in, in retro- retrospect, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. especially after reading a good book. <laughs> um, I can really see now that there really would have been some value if this particular team would have been able to see themselves as part of a system with other levels or other teams uh, above and below them and around them perhaps that their behavior was impacting, uh and we didn't do that and After reading your book, I wished that we had um could you Could you talk a little bit about this idea of the whole system in the room?
2: Well, the whole system in the room or getting the right people there for the task is at the heart of our work um and uh it it uh, really speaks to what it means to have meetings where people are present to one another. Um, that the information is is there. Uh, we have an acronym that says if you're really going to think systemically, you want to pay attention to having people so that collectively, or, or, or inviting the people so that collectively you have people in authority, people with resources, people with expertise, with information, and with need. It put together, it gives you the If you take the first letters of each word, it gives you the little, the two-word phrase are in. We didn't do that purposefully. We didn't start with an acronym, but someone said, you know, if you look at those words, that's what you get from it, that we're asking, are the right people in the room? And uh, what, what you end up avoiding if you pay attention to this structural mechanism, is the frustration and the cynicism and the delays that happen when people try to make decisions, but the information isn't there, those with the decision-making authority aren't present, and one meeting has to lead to another, another, and another. So we've said if we can set the meeting up so that people can make decisions without having to you know, go outside and ask uh, for the most part, then we want to be in those kinds of meetings.
0: And today, more than ever, we really need to pay attention to how many meetings and the time that's going into it. So I would think Well, that... the
2: irony is people think, of course, it takes time to ensure this, but the irony is that it is shorter, faster, and cheaper because you're not leading. Uh, you're not having one meeting um call for a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, and so on. Yeah, it's
1: important to emphasize that we're talking about meetings that matter. We're not talking about all meetings. We're not talking about right. panel discussions and yep. one-way information meetings. Exactly.
0: And exactly. The thousands <laughs>
1: of other kinds of meetings that people have. But we do know that every day there are thousands and thousands of meetings uh, that are important, where people are dealing with topics that matter, and a lot of uh, – the frustration and cynicism people experience is simply because they don't have all the right people in the room, and that's not and that's something that's controllable. That's not a
2: it's not a behavioral it's, issue. It's
0: that that's where it yeah. is a structural issue. Absolutely. Well, a, a number of ideas and techniques presented throughout the book are related to what you call D. That's D like David, and I. I like Ivan D. I. Principle. <laughs> would you uh, Would you talk about these a little bit? Because I think they help to set a context for some of the other things that we'll talk about later. The, the, well,
2: the, <laughs>
1: unfortunately, the D. and the I. are twelve syllable words, but they mean differentiation <laughs> and integration. And uh, um,
2: differentiation and integration. Uh, uh, are are the at the heart of a uh, theory, and it's 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 not a it's a biologic theory, um, and it's been around, and it's been translated into organizational work through the work of Paul Lawrence and Jay Lorsch, and it's been translated into uh, systems work and and group uh, therapy work through the work of Ivan Agazarian but what and personal but, growth and personal, uh, personal growth work uh through the work of John and Joyce Weir and uh, we discovered that it was the theory of change organ- uh, systems change that we we both uh, have as uh, as our belief system and here's how it goes it says that a system will transform through a process of differentiating, meaning the di- distinguishing all of the different aspects, every person, every part getting to be spoken, all experiences, expertise, uh, information, and in that uh, differentiation, when we bring it all into the room, then you have an opportunity to integrate, and integrate means to bring it together in new ways, to form new relationships, alliances, understanding solutions to problems. And um, and we hold as our premise that you cannot integrate unless you first differentiate. And so one of the things that we know about the notion of differentiation is that uh It means distinguish and classify, but it also can mean isolate and ostracize, and then the word integration means to uh harmonize, but it could also mean decentralize so our job as leaders is to enable people to differentiate their stakes without excluding anybody and to integrate their goals without forcing unity and that's our challenge.
0: It certainly is a challenge and, and I thought there was a wonderful illustration of of uh uh this d i process. You have a little passage in the book. I was wondering if one of you'd be willing to read uh just a a, a really interesting little story about a hospital emergency room you call it the hospital emergency room mystery
1: yes. and, uh, Mr. Caston, you you know uh, you're one of able our to favorite uh, d i examples because it's yeah, could you, it's, uh, could you, it's you a share practical application of this idea to a, a significant problem in the hospital. This was a large hospital uh, primary care department mm-hmm. When at a time when primary care was still pretty new and required the collaboration of pharmacists, clinical pharmacists, administrators, nurse practitioners, and physicians. They all worked together every day in the hospital, but they... Uh, we're looking for how to become better integrative program managers. Each knew their own specialty pretty well, but they didn't know a lot about what the others did, and they had never really collaborated managing their work system. So they, they all had assumptions about their own roles and how they fit with one another, but they'd never tested them. So in one of the training workshops, exercises that we designed along with their faculty, they were given a case that uh, exam- they were given case examples of things that really had happened in the hospital. In this case, it's a woman who came into the emergency room with a lot of dizziness and the admit- told the admitting clerk she was taking her pressure pills four times a day. So a nurse practitioner looked it up and found uh, a prescription had written, been, to- been written two weeks earlier. She only had low blood pressure and the nurse didn't see anything wrong with her. A medical resident examined her said, "Yeah, just get her to take her pills. You got to educate these people." So the nurse pointed out the patient took the pills for months and was fine until today. Then she noted a curious discrepancy. The label on the medicine vial called for a different dosage than what was in her records. So the, the nurse said, "The pharmacy's messed up again. I'm calling them." Don't bother, said the medical resident. They don't listen anyway. Just give her a new prescription. So the nurse wrote, and the resident signed a new prescription. And a few days later, there the woman was back in the emergency room with a fainting spell. So she had with her two bottles of the medicine, and the nurse checked them out and found that it was the same medicine with two different names. She had a prescription for the generic version and for the brand-name version, and a resident uh called the pharmacist who found that the two prescriptions had been written two weeks apart the woman's taking both of them thinking she's got two different <laughs> m- medicines and's actually taking a double dose now the the action really goes into high gear you should have caught this said the resident to the pharmacist don't you talk to your clients the pharmacist said the woman told him what she what she knew what But she knew what she had to do. That's what happens, he said, when you doctors just countersign prescriptions that the nurses write and don't really evaluate the case. So this Screening resident called the clinic resident, and they agreed it was the nurse's fault for not taking the first bottle away from the patient, and the nurse said, well, this only happens when physicians sit around in offices reading (laughs) journals. (laughs) So that was the case, and what we did is to ask them to sit in their respective differentiated groups, the pharmacists, the nurses, the doctors, and administrators, and diagnose, that's language they understand, this case from their own perspective. What went wrong? And how did this happen? And each came up with an explanation that uh, more or less justified their own behavior and was critical or at least misunderstood the behavior of the other three professions. And, of course, they made reports to one another, and everybody was a bit upset about that. Well, now came the integration part. Uh, We taught them a little technique called responsibility charting uh, where you – Identify the decisions that have to be made and who and what's the relationship of every one of the actors in the drama to the decision, whether they have formal authority or responsibility or just need to be informed or whether they have to support the decision without questioning it. But in any case, uh, we asked them uh, now to reorganize themselves into integrated groups so that in each group there would be an, a nurse practitioner, a physician. A pharmacist and an administrator and to prepare responsibility charts for this particular situation so that it could never happen again in the hospital no one would ever get two doses a double dose of the same pills and make themselves even sicker than they were and they did that and we now had five different solutions or five different responsibility charts from the five groups, and they all reported to one another. And the interesting thing is that even though there was some overlap in the charts, no two were alike. (laughs) And and at that point, and I'll never forget this, even though it happened some years ago, one of the doctors jumped up, clapped a hand to his head, and said, oh, my God, there's no right answer to this. (laughs) <laughs> and everybody was kind of uh, a little shocked at that revelation because in in medicine, you know, certainty is important, and yet there's right. a lot of ambiguity. Yeah. And, of course, uh, that we then talked about, well, then how do you get certainty into a situation when there's no right answer? And the answer is that there is a right answer. The, the right answer is the one that all the professions will agree to, uh, to implement.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: so that had... Uh, quite an impact on the group, but that's a very practical application and the The underlying uh, belief here if you're going to apply these these concepts of differentiation integration is that it's very difficult to integrate if you don't differentiate first, yeah. unless people start with what is their own position and their own assumptions and and Come to understand hear hear one another on that subject. It's very hard to put their heads together and find an integrative solution that will that will satisfy all of them.
0: Yeah, such Does that a great oh, absolutely, and it's such a great story and it's so real. And you could just see everybody pointing the fingers at everybody else, and you right. can also visualize the surprise on their faces when they came up with five different ways to deal with the problem. It's fascinating. I love it such a great story, and your book is full of stories like that, of course, um, and that that just really help to drive these concepts home. In, in the second principle in your book, um, you talk about control what you can. In my view, that's the easy part of this, but the other, the rest of it is to let go of what you can't. For me, personally, that's the hard part. Um, you talk about the importance of assuring the, that the participants are equal to the task, And then you share a very pointed story to illustrate this from one of your experiences. Would you be able to to share this story with us and also the principle?
2: Well, let me talk. Yeah, let me talk about the principle and its implications. And um, let's start out with you saying it's very hard for you to let go, and the rest of us joining you (laughs) because (laughs) it's very hard for for each one of us to let go of this. Thing, this ambiguous thing called control, uh, and, and if if any if, if whoever of us is honest, you know, we what would we like to control? Well, Of course, we'd love to control the outcomes. We'd love to control the, the people's uh, motivation and their behavior. But when you can step away from knowing that, you know, that's a false assumption and uh, you live in fantasy with that, and move into what you can control, which is the structure, which is and, and the structural issues are many, and we've begun by talking about getting the right people in the room as one thing that you can control. Another is the length of time that they're working together. So is the time span that, you, that you've allotted up to the task? Are you asking people to do something in a half a day that would take two, three days? Um, Are you uh, creating, uh, enabling them to work in a space that's conducive to the work? Uh, Are you clear about the goal yourself and then helping them or assuring that the people in the room are clear about the purpose? Uh, Are you, and this whole notion of making sure the participants are equal to the task, are you assuring that you don't have um, too few people there in terms of perspectives, in terms of authority and resources that um, you know are needed in order to accomplish a task? Because one of the things that we know is that we can't lead, we can't manage, or facilitate a meeting where the key people are missing. And regardless of our of our facilitation style, um, this is uh, this isn't an, an essential. And important for us to acknowledge. Um, the other thing is clarity about our role. Are we in a facilitation mode so that we are not responsible for the content, uh, but yes, responsible for the process? Or as leaders in organizations, are they wearing multiple hats where you're responsible for both the content and the process? And just clarity about that role is significant. Are we starting on time and ending on time? As simple as that sounds, it has a big impact. Are we um, uh, enabling people to work together in um, differentiated groups and mixed groups, whatever the design, how are we designing it so that people can have this opportunity to differentiate their stakes and bring them back together again? So these are all the issues that we pay attention to, knowing that if we set up a meeting in this way, Um, under these, quote, healthy uh, physical and um, organizational uh, conditions, that what we can get as a result is a constructive outcome. Not we can't predict the outcome, but we know that it can be constructive.
1: And we weren't born knowing this. We really did have to learn it in the streets uh, through trial and error and some tough experiences. And one of the stories we have in, in our book is about, the merger meeting of two large banks uh, down south some years ago, before we really had codified this whole thing, we had a pretty good idea about what we meant by whole system. But uh, after this particular meeting, we had to rethink it. This is an example of how even the best facilitation comes to naught if you don't have all the people there that you ought to have there. In this case, there were two banks that had decided to merge, and 80% of their of the bank was really their back office operations, their data processing operations. Uh, and each bank had its data center in a different city, and the city where the cities were about 100 miles apart. And so the decision that had, that had to be made was where to locate the operation center, because one of the bases for the merger was that they would be more efficient and could save money if they had a single uh, data center. So. The managers of the of these functions, the vice presidents who were in charge of this technology on both sides of the merger agreed that they ought to have a meeting with all of their staffs and all of the key people involved to figure out how to deal with this very sticky issue of the data center. So and they asked us to facilitate the meeting, and we did, and we had a wonderful meeting, and it was a very uh, difficult meeting because people's lives were going to be affected. They would already decided that, there, that no one was going to lose their job. However, in a merger, there's always a, a winner and a loser at every level, and usually they trade positions. It's a little like a, a player draft. If you get the top job here, then we get the next top job. So that wasn't the issue, but the issue of where to put it really mattered. And so the question became, how do we make this decision? And this was the uh, facilitation suggestion that we made to them. We had them, uh, the two groups from the respective cities sit together and each make a case for putting the data center in the other city. Mm -hmm. In other words, make a case for the other side of the equation, the one Mm -hmm. that would affect you the most. And so each of them did that. They spent about an hour and they really talked through the best case they could make for the other city and they presented to each other. And when they were all finished, they just looked at each other And they all agreed that City A was the right place for this. And the key to it was one of the vice presidents said, look, I live in City B. This would mean I have to move my family. My kids are in school. My wife has a job. And this is just not feasible for me. So I know I'm going to have to find another job. And I know this is the right decision for the bank. So that sealed the deal. And they were feeling terrific about themselves. This was three days really well spent, solid. Well, they then went back to their boss, the head of the company, and presented the decision. And the boss, uh, I don't, I wasn't there, so I didn't hear it, but uh, said something to the effect that I live in City B, and I want to be able to monitor this pretty closely, and I don't feel like traveling. And that was the end of the discussion.
0: Oh, <laughs> my goodness gracious. And when
1: I said to one of the vice presidents, what are you going to do? He said, dust off my resume. Uh, and, in, and indeed, uh, what happened in that company was a, a severe case of demotivation at a number of levels, and some key executives oh, what
0: left. A, a waste of everybody's time. You know, if we, had
1: our, if we knew then what we know now, mm-hmm. we would have been able to say to them, don't have this meeting if the boss isn't there. You know, right. why waste your time? Uh, you know, he could have told them right at the beginning, uh, what his boundary conditions are, and what he was willing to live with, he he made it sound. You know, the way he charged them, he made it sound he was going to do whatever they decided. And mm-hmm. for all we know, he may have come to this decision after the fact that it was not really in his mind until he was confronted with a reality. But that's another reason why you want people in the dialogue, Absolutely. so that they can explore their needs and and so on. And you know, everyone would have come to a better decision if he'd been there.
0: Absolutely, what a great story and you know, emphasizing having the right people in the room. We
1: controlled everything but that.
0: (laughs) Everything but that. My goodness. One of the heartbreakers. (laughs) We
1: couldn't control his behavior as both a proof of the theory and a test of it.
0: Well, well, it was a wonderful learning opportunity. Absolutely, <laughs> to take to Well, the yeah, yeah, well it's, it's benefited a lot of people since. <laughs> That's right. It's benefiting me. I just just knowing the story. It's just a. It's such a great example. You you also talk uh, in the book about these this idea of subgroups, and you get into this. You start to talk about this. Um, early in the book, and then you get into it uh, in greater detail uh, much later in one of your principles, um, and you talk about formal versus informal subgroups, could you explain um, why it might be important for us to use subgroups as a tool to differentiate?
2: Yeah, and and I'd like to take the versus app it's when we think of formal subgroups and when we recognize informal subgroups forming. Um and
0: and both can happen. So okay. it's
2: not a versus
0: Okay. That's a good good suggestion. So let's sure. remove the versus
2: <laughs> Well when
1: to use w well, you know, it's what the it's it's the questions what does each mean and what's the significance of each kind of subgroup. The, the The ones that are best known are formal subgroups yeah. what we call in future search meeting stakeholder groups in a mm-hmm. in a school system this, these are the students, the teachers, the parents the administrators, the people who provide services like bus driving and and meals in the cafeteria, and so on there we We call those stakeholders and these are formal subgroups each of whom have a particular interest in the future. Of the school, and everybody understands subgroups at that level in terms of stakeholder language.
2: And um, when when we work with a with a planning group, or we work with people who are thinking about how to differentiate the system, we ask them uh, to think about what the functional differences are. What are the differences that make a difference? And a wonderful example was working in a city on transportation. And when we talked about who are the different stakeholders, you know, immediately out of people's heads come things like the schools, the hospitals, businesses, et cetera, and they go around the list. And then in their discussion, all of a sudden they're thinking, wait a minute. If we're really looking at the issue of transportation, the people who work in the hospitals – have the same kind of issues as the people who work in the schools if they're the same size entity. So that wasn't a, a real differentiation. And they pulled back and said, wait a minute, let's look at uh, businesses or organizations that are huge and have a lot of people traveling to and from. Let's look at businesses that have uh, vans on the road. Uh, and they went through differentiating their system as it related to the the issue of transportation in the city, which was enlightened for for them, um, and uh, and that's the formal differentiation.
1: Okay. So that's something that we think about in advance of a meeting. We're interested in knowing what are the formal differences in a meeting. It really matters to know who's in the union and who's part of management in in a meeting that involves both. But the other level, this concept of the informal subgroup is the one that's not very well understood in our society. And, in fact, most people don't even recognize the informal subgroups in meetings, even though we're all part of them all the time.
2: And I'd like to, at this point, just acknowledge Ivana Agazarian, who is a theorist in group, um, psych- group psychotherapy for the concept of... Um, how we come together and and it's so into it's pretty intuitively obvious that we come together um wait l- i'll back up from the come together words let me just say that in a group at any point in time there exists numerous numerous subgroups whether people know it or not around what is being talked about so yes. somebody will say something make a point and in people's heads and we like to talk about the bubble, you know, the cartoon bubble over people's heads. You People will be saying to themselves, that was great, I wish I'd said it. And other people will be saying, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, some will say, I wish that person would go on more, and others would say, I wish they will, would shut up. Now, we don't know this is going on, or, or we don't know what the specifics are at any point in time, unless it's important to find out. And when it's important to find out, we can surface those informal subgroups based on where people are and give them the opportunity to discover where the similarities and the differences are in their points of view.
1: Yeah, and when does it become important to uh, make informal subgroups uh, explicit? It's at the point where the tension and anxiety in a meeting rise to where people are at risk of abandoning the task, of yeah. losing sight of the reason that they came there. So this is a judgment call. But, you know, a lot of we, we we can let subgroups come and go without our ever knowing what they are as long as people are continuing to work on the task. Yeah. If they're 51% or more engaged in doing the work, we, we pretty much leave them alone. It's when they slip below the line and risk running away or getting into an unproductive fight or uh, just abdicating, turning it all over to whoever the leader is, that's the point at which the informal subgroups really become important because we need to know what's going on with people that's taking them away from the task. And there's a particular moment in time when the risk is greatest. Well,
2: the the risk is greatest when somebody says something and I'll use the word risky, that is risky, and that's contextual. It's when a person brings something up that's outside the norm, that isn't part of the conversation, the mainstream conversation, and you you could feel uh, that someone has just said something and they're out on a limb. Outrageous.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. outrageous in one way or mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> That's never happened in your meetings, has it? <laughs> 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 maybe, maybe
2: one, two, or three times in a meeting. Right. <laughs> but they're critical events. They're critical incidents.
1: Some people enjoy this, and some people do it spontaneously without uh, even understanding the impact that they're having on wow.
0: the group. Wow.
2: And well, I, you know, and it's that um, moment in time uh, when the person themselves are at risk. Because they could easily be scapegoated or ignored, which is a form of scapegoating, and the group is at risk for behaving in a way that it doesn't, that isn't constructive, that's off task, where people feel bad about themselves, and and the safety of the group, that quote unquote safety or trust, mm. is jeopardi is in jeopardy. Yeah,
1: you know, listen. Just to give you an example, uh, there's a meeting where there are environmentalists together with business people together with other stakeholder groups but the issue is sustainability in the community and uh, somebody says something about jobs and employment and one of the environmentalists says well that's just what you expect from business people they really don't care whether we destroy the planet or not well that you know that's mm. now now we now we're, we've we've set the stage for a real fight we're no longer working sure. on how to make a sustainable community exactly. we're, we're about ready to fight over who's Whose worldview is the right
0: worldview. Well, I was fascinated by this whole topic of subgroups, and I could just see how powerful this was. And you actually, um, you know, show us how to really work with subgroups, and you draw upon, you've already mentioned one of the researchers, which was Yvonne, and I was so glad to hear you pronounce her name. I believe you called her Agazarian?
2: Agazarian.
0: Agazarian. Yvonne and, and, of course, the other researcher that you mentioned in the book related to this work um, around subgroups and really understanding their findings, how it ties to the use of subgroups with Solomon Ash. I was wondering yeah, if you could listen, talk him Maybe to,
1: we should say a few words about his research before we tell you the answer. <laughs> to yeah,
0: it, it would be, be how really how do helpful to with, know. How
1: do you deal with the outrageous statement in a way oh, that uh, right. groups right. will keep working?
0: And and, and and as a result of, of their findings you actually come up with three techniques. Um could you could you um could you talk oh, about well, actually we
2: yeah, and it's not something that we created at out of whole class. I mean it's built on the both, the, both of their Both insights. of the tech and yeah, this is really
1: mean, their I t- without getting into the details, Solomon Ash's research was the conditions under which people will maintain their independence in groups. In other words, what uh, triggers people into behaving like sheep and ru- rushing off a cliff together, and under what conditions will they stay true to their own uh, integrity and hold on to what they believe to be true? And he found that uh, through a lot of experiment, experimenting that deviants, people who have a deviant point of view, are are likely to be scapegoated if no one else shares their view or shares their feelings doesn't really even matter if they're their identical view if in other words if if a person has at least one ally what he called an ally and a, and an ally is another person who's willing to put themselves out on a limb and go against the group then they're more likely to stay engaged and to be constructive than if they're out there all by themselves and become uh, the scapegoat for the group mm-hmm. So I this, that's I uh,
0: fascinating.
1: So then the question becomes uh, you know how do you, how do you keep people uh, involved in the task by finding allies for them when they're at risk of becoming the scapegoat?
2: And it's counterintuitive. I'm going to take the a, a, a simple example uh, I'm sure you've been in a meeting where someone has said, you know, this uh, this isn't going anywhere. I'm pretty bored with what we're doing right now. Do you ever have that experience? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Now I know the impulse is any number of things, uh, maybe to get more information, to kind of ask that person why they're bored, what they would rather do, all of those kind of questioning uh, putting that person as the focal issue, um, and uh, and doing that, and everyone else is sitting there watching. Now, it's that that's only going to push that person further out on the limb. That is not uh, that is that's not uh, facilitated well, behavior that's going to enable that person to stay part of the hall.
1: Well, we don't want their boredom to become the topic of the meeting. Mm-hmm. No?
0: Right, the it's like they've the hijacked the which meeting. had to
1: do with water quality or the. Building uh, a new daycare center to uh, somebody's boredom now becomes the topic. Exactly.
2: And and the issue of uh, are we on track is a critical issue, and that issue will only be addressed if that person's point of view is part of the group. And so we ask what I think is a very simple question, ends up being profound, and that is does anyone else feel that way? Is anyone else in that place? In the same boat uh, regarding where we are, and the question is, can you find an ally for that person?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And, it's, but, and if someone says, "Yeah, I'm bored too," or "I think that we've we've lost the thread here," uh, too, that's nine times out of ten. That's all that needs to happen for this person to relax and get more involved wow. is to just find that there are other people there because then that opens the door to, to okay, then what should we be doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of ten, we can keep moving if we just found an ally. Now, there's a little wrinkle here. Yeah. Sometimes you're asking on the content, and sometimes you don't want to touch the content. You only want to ask on the feeling. A boredom is a kind of feeling there's no finger-pointing, there's no one else involved in this. We're dealing with their own issues. So we can say, you know, who else is bored? And, and if there's a whole bunch of people who are bored, then we have to say, what well, well, what's it take for us to unbore ourselves?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, if it's just a few people, we say, okay, you know, what do you want to do? Uh, And other people will say, well, I think we, you know, and and then you have a good conversation. But sometimes the content of the statement is accusatory, like the example I gave earlier about that's just what I'd expect from business people. And uh, then we don't say, well, is that what other people expect from business people? We we would rather say, are there others here who are frustrated with any of the other positions in the room? In other words, we try to stay with the feelings or as if someone says, I'm really angry at what you just said, we say, well, is anyone else angry about anything that's going on here? So we try to legitimize anger as a feeling. We try to legitimize right. boredom as a feeling.
2: And when you can legitimize that, it becomes less of a um, a kind of power player, a hot item that people use as a reason to kind of disengage. When it's part of our reality, then it's easier for this group to stay on task. It doesn't become as much an issue,
1: people relax, and until you've tried this you you don't understand how simple and how powerful it is, but it's an example of d i theory in action. you just you
0: know, definitely people to a differentiate powerful.
1: themselves on the whole The whole underlying theme is that every feeling and every idea ought to be able to live in a meeting. Mm-hmm. And that if we're going to have a successful solution to the problem or a decision that will stick, that has to be made in the context of us all talking about a world that includes everybody's perceptions.
0: Yeah. And
1: that, in a way that gets us to our philosophical rationale, which is that if, if we're going to be successful in whatever we do, we need to learn how to work with one another just the way we are If we've all got to be different before we can work together, we're we're never going to successfully work together. If If every human failing and shortcoming has to be diagnosed and remedied before groups can successfully accomplish their tasks, then we're doomed. And an awful lot of action goes into training people how to do things they never actually do.
0: So, well, I, I I found this to be just a really really powerful uh, idea. This whole idea of sub subgroups, and in a sense, it you know kind of struck me is that we weren't trying to fix anybody. We weren't trying right, to tell that they right. were wrong, but we were standing with them and saying, yes, you know, it's 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 okay to feel this way. Other people may feel this way, and right. just it sounded as though once the participant felt their feelings had really been understood and heard and validated that they are just then kind of ready to move on okay i well, told you the they emotionality
2: comes out of it so instead of people getting more and more hot or excited or scared or whatever they feel about the issue i don't mean excited in terms of hope and aspiration, I mean the frenetic, um, the more people get caught up in the emotional piece of it, the less they, they, you know, you leave your rationality and you leave the work you're doing. So those feelings are all part of the spectrum, important to come into the work. But as you just said, Susan, to be confirmed, to be validated, and to be part of the, you know, the multifaceted people that we are. Yes.
1: But but there is the one time in ten where that doesn't satisfy the case, and if we just go back to the boredom example, which we're making up at this point, but
2: we're uh, confusion. Yeah, well, it doesn't whatever. matter. But someone yeah.
1: can say I'm bored, and you say who else feels that way? And two other people say I'm bored too, and then three others jump in and say, Well, not me. I think this is the greatest discussion we've ever had. And we don't <laughs> understand why you guys are bored. Uh-oh. Okay, well now we don't have a choice about whether to leave the task or not. We have got to uh, let go. We have to let it go for 5 minutes to resolve. We've got to find an integration for the board and the unboard <laughs> uh-huh. so that they can all continue together. And so now we we take a couple we have to call a little time out here and say, "Okay, let's resolve this." And once again, the technique for the resolution is counterintuitive. Because in the days when we were first learning to do this work, we would immediately have a have a, a dialogue between the board and the onboard. We'd have a what a, essentially a debate. Okay, right. you you've had your say now. You guys have your say, and they try to convince each other Let's that their position's we. correct. And of course, all we do is harden up each other's positions, <laughs> and now we have to have a conflict management meeting, and maybe we need a communication skills workshop. But we do something quite different.
2: Um And the example that's a good one from our experience isn't on the topic of the board on board, but it is a topic on content and 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 this is helpful when people polarize or go to their extreme differences around content. Um, well we with um in this particular example the um the a, a team was talking about how they make decisions, and somebody said they were very proud of the fact that they have, they, you know, you, they use their reasoning capability and the data and all of the information they collect and how they analyze it, blah, blah, blah. So that was going on. And and a, a person, on the, again, another top team member, was, uh, you know, starting, I I noticed this actually, but it wouldn't have mattered, was starting to get a little agitated, but he himself brought in, This information, he said. You know what? And this was after hesitating. He said, "I don't um, use just reasoning." He said, "I use intuition a lot too in the decision making." And and the other what I saw the other side of what we saw the other side of our eyes was those who were so proud of their reasoning capabilities started to. Sit up straighter with, um, you know, with looks of, oh my, you know, what's going on here? Okay, uh-huh. so what we did was find that there were two subgroups in that room. There were those who felt that the intuition was critical, and those who felt that reasoning was critical, rationality was critical, and regardless of how we could rationally understand that, the emotionality was in this and. The technique we use is not to have as Marv said them talk across their differences, but we ask who in the room uh thinks that this decision making based on intuition is an important aspect, and we got the people who are in that sub subgroup and then we got formed the people who are in the the reasoning subgroup and got them to identify themselves and in a couple minutes, we asked the people in the intuition subgroup to talk to themselves while the others listened, talk to each other and as they discussed what their thinking was, they noticed that they discovered that there were differences in their thinking. And then when they had completed that, we asked those in the other subgroup to have to explore their issue together and they talked together about the notions of using reasoning and the and the other subgroup listened. And it didn't take long, as you can imagine, it didn't take long for them to discover the connections that they had where they had only perceived differences. And the integrating statement came, came up quite quickly, which is, you know, what we need both, we use both, and our our success in in decision making in our company is based on the fact that we have access to both some could you know some of us are stronger in one and some in the other and it's that kind of integration that will keep this organization this particular team um going at another level of understanding yeah. of their
0: capabilities mm-hmm. so it
1: took another 10 minutes but we didn't end up with a polarized meeting we were able to quickly get back on task wow
0: such a so many powerful powerful techniques in in this work and, and I I can't believe that we have we have been talking for an hour. <laughs> yes, already, <laughs> I feel like we have just barely scratched the surface of That's all true. of the the um, the techniques and and processes that you have shared with us in in the book. Be, before we conclude our time today, um, I was just wondering, um, you know, since your your work with uh, Future Search is is so you know well known and um I, I was just wondering if you'd be able to do two things first of all would you be able to give us just a thumbnail sketch the reader's digest version of a future search and, and and you know how how you um, how you organize a, a future search uh, process and and then it, if you would be willing to share with anyone who might be listening to this uh, you know, how people could access your skills as as very skilled facilitators. Uh, you know, for a variety of contexts, you've mentioned a few of the different kinds of meetings that you've convened and organized and, and lead, uh, led for other organizations. Uh, And I'm sure that people would have an interest in knowing a little bit about you and the kinds of services that you provide. So could you tell us just a little bit about future search and then a little bit about how people uh, might connect with you and learn more?
1: Well, we think of – we use future search in three senses. In one sense, it's it's a a strategic planning meeting of something less than three days during which people explore the past, the present – the future that they all want what their common ground is what are the propositions that there's one hundred percent agreement on and then what actions they would like to take to put those uh, propositions in uh, to translate them into policies and procedures and programs the second sense is that it's a particular philosophy and theory of facilitating which we've been talking with you for an hour about but we could sum it up briefly for those uh, of our uh, listeners who lead meetings, the axiom is that the more work you do, the less other people will do. So if you want people to take responsibility, you have to give them an opportunity to do the work themselves and not do that for them. And our our own guideline is never do anything for people they're capable of doing for themselves, even when they don't know that they're capable of it. And in future search uh, people have an opportunity to learn that they know how to do things they didn't know they could do. Which leads us to the third aspect of Future Search. Because we have a network of 350 people uh, doing this around the world, they're continually testing the meeting design and the philosophy and theory and comparing notes with each other. And so we experience ourselves as a a part of of a global learning community and a global change strategy. And we imagine ourselves uh, collectively changing the world one meeting at a time. And uh, the thing that Sandra and I like about this change strategy, where we feel pretty good about ourselves and about our colleagues, is that in order to participate, we do not have to be high-level thinkers and earth-shattering movers and shakers. All we need to do is run this meeting with integrity whenever and wherever we can.
2: The network website is www.futuresearch.net, and um, people can join the network itself, which is a learning community, um, by uh, agreeing to hold the principles and work with integrity and share with others and be of service. Um, We say that we can get future searches done anywhere in the world for whatever people can afford and since 1993, we've been able to do that. So, regardless of what um, the uh, culture, you know the, the, the culture, the language, the economic uh, capabilities of a community or an organization are, uh, we are ready to serve, and we have the infrastructure because we have members who are. Um, aligned on these principles and ready to act. And our work is just to continue bringing in the stories and sharing them. The 3rd edition of Future Search will be out in the fall. A right. brand new redesigned website will be up hopefully by the fall. And um we uh, we we are ready to serve and join and collaborate with whoever wants to collaborate with us.
1: And we do run workshops on uh future search. The next one will be in Belgium in September. We usually do one in the U.S. and one overseas every year, as well as workshops on don't just do something, stand there, this more generic meeting management philosophy and theory. And the workshops are posted on our website so people can follow them and see what's coming up and when. And of course, we'll custom design them for people who want to do them within intact groups as
2: well. We um, have a new workshop that we're testing, we're trying out this year in October for the first time, and it's got a mysterious title, maybe, maybe not, it's called What Would You Do If? dot, 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 which is the question that's always asked. So we're going to get together with those people who want to um, come together and fill in the dots.
1: <laughs> find out what what, what what they would do if.
0: <laughs> that sounds fabulous. And, and, yeah, uh, very and
1: that's based on the belief that if you have a large enough group together, someone always knows what to do.
0: I <laughs> think that sounds like a fun Even when box. the
1: experts don't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly would love to join you for that. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, well, we'd love to have you there.
0: Well, it, it to add good. your
1: expertise as well, yeah.
0: Well it has just been such a pleasure to um to have this time with both of you today and as I mentioned uh to you in our previous conversations, I've just gathered so much from your book that was new and and thought provoking information for me um you know challenging me to look at at meetings and facilitation in new ways. And I I know that I've grown as a facilitator from your book, and I certainly think that this is a book for anyone that leads meetings regardless of how much facilitation experience they've had. I think they're going to find some things that will really stretch them in the book. And I applaud your work and um, certainly look forward to having an opportunity to interact with both of you uh, going forward and I do want to underscore the website which we've mentioned a couple of times now wwwfuturesearch.net uh, and um I certainly will be joining your your network and looking forward to monitoring um your work and and being a part of the of the work that you're you're doing Uh, Following our interview today, I also wanted to mention that anyone listening is invited to join in this conversation on transformation. Uh, All of the books that we're discussing this year relate to that topic uh, by joining a group on, on LinkedIn called Bookends the Discussion. And this is a place where you can pose questions for Sandra and Marvin who will join us in the discussion group along with your colleagues and peers. You will also find a link to our recording today once it has been posted there, uh, as well as uh, you can find the recording on the Bookends website. That's www.bookendsbookclub.net. So uh, once again, thank you for um, for this this time. It's been wonderful to visit with you both, and for uh, for all of your ideas and. Um, Just really great information on meetings. Thanks to you both. Thank you, Susan. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yep. Thanks, Susan. (laughs) Bye-bye.